0: Well, good morning. appreciate you guys being here this morning. Welcome to Aletheia Church. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. We are glad that you are here with us this morning. Um, If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn over to Psalm 121. Uh, That is where we are going to be this morning. Um, If you do not have a Bible, um, over at this welcome table over here, we actually have uh, a bunch. We would love for you to take one. That would be our gift to you. Uh, You can feel free to keep it. Um, One of our values here at Aletheia is that um, we believe there is power in the Word of God. We believe that God's Word um, is for us, that it is alive, that it is active, um, that it is sharper than any uh, sword, and that God uses it both to declare um, His character and who He is to us, but also who we are and who he uh, is molding us into. And so uh, we think one of the most important things uh, you can do is be reading the word of God regularly. And if we can help assist in some way in doing that, we want to be able to do so. So feel free to grab one of those Bibles. Um, As you're turning over to Psalm 121, let me share a story with you that um, I think in reality, most of us here this morning are going to be able to relate with in some way, some, some more than others, specifically the parents in the, <laughs> the parking lot. I was going to say the room, but we're not in a room. So um, phew, what a year 2020 has been, right? So <clears throat> uh, some of you guys know my youngest son, Josiah. Uh, he's the one that hides behind Jackie and I if we're in a large crowd, and I've noticed some of you ladies, specifically the college students, like you'll you know you'll smile at him and whatever else and try to flirt with him to gain his attention and his affections. And good luck to you. Um, he plays hard to get very very well, um, and so um, but he he's very very shy and very reserved, and that's kind of how he comes off. Uh, but one of the things that um, you would know about him as you spend more time with him and he's more comfortable around you is he is. Fiercely, and I mean fiercely, independent, to to a fault, uh, and that may surprise some of you to know that, like you know, he can lash out in anger, be really 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 frustrated. Because one of the things Theo even says um, is that whenever he's around my family, his goal is just to hear Josiah speak, because Josiah often will not even say anything when he's around. Him. It's kind of how he operates when he's in a, around people that he doesn't know, and so a couple months ago, as a matter of fact, it was for the Greens' wedding. A couple months ago, um, we had to put a dress shirt on him. And that is a rarity in my house. I'm sure that surprises all of you, but weddings and funerals is the only time anything remotely dressy gets put on in my house. And so, you know, with a dress shirt, there's a number of buttons that are on the shirt. And knowing that Josiah was likely, as a a five-year-old, going to be unable to button this shirt by himself, um... You know, he, he puts his arms through, and then I just kneel down and I go to start putting the buttons through the hole. And, you know, Josiah in anger looks at me, No, dad, no. And I'm like, Dude, what? <laughs> like, whoa. What? Like, what is going on here? And I take a step back, and he goes, I, I want to do it. And so, of course, right, his little, his little hands are working on it, and he, he can't get it. And the one that he does get is in the, he, it's in the wrong hole, of course, right? So, failure, right? Because dad knows dude, like, I'm 34. I can barely button a a dress shirt, like. And so here's what I found fascinating about the whole situation, though. You would think, you know, after a couple of minutes of failure, right, he would resign to the fact, like, I can't do this. And dad had offered to help earlier. I can go to him for help. But the more he failed, the more stubborn he became, And to the point where instead of admitting he needed my help, he doubles down to where he's just a sobbing, uncontrollable mess balled up on the floor yelling, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. So finally, because we're running late and we're running out of time, I had to explain to him, dude, it's time to admit defeat. Game over. You lost. The shirt wins. And... I, 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 lay, I, I got down on my knees and I helped him finish getting ready and in and, and frustration and in and, and the crying, he, he submits and we get the shirt button and then we went on about our day. And any parent here likely has some story where they've experienced that with their, with their kid at some point in time, knowing that their kid was unable to do something but they refused any help. And one of the things I think is, is interesting is this difficult task lay before Josiah and yet, even though dad was there to help, he still refused to allow me to help him. And we, we kind of sit there, and I see some of you guys smiling and kind of giggling a little bit, because we would say, well, that's so foolish. Like, why, why would he reject that help? But as I was preparing for my, my sermon this week, and as I was reading through Psalm 121, and, I, and I, I started thinking back on that story, I'm like, how often are we like that in relation to the Lord? How often in the journey of life do we face a roadblock or a difficulty or a season of suffering or pain or sorrow, and instead of looking to God as our help, we dig our heels in and claim that we can do this on our own. We stubbornly refuse to accept any help. And does that ever go well for us when we do that? What, what likely ends up happening in the midst of that? And as Kiara read Psalm 121 to us earlier, I think probably what you saw is Psalm 121 is a, is a song of confidence. The psalmist who is singing this song out is declaring in defeat and in sorrow and in impending danger and evil, I have one hope. I have one hope and it's in the Lord. One of the interesting things I found out as I was reading this psalm this week and, and, and studying through it is that this was a song oftentimes that Israelites sang on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And as they were heading to visit the temple, and they needed God's help for a successful journey. But what ended up coming of this song is it became amongst rabbis and amongst synagogues a, a parable for life. That the journey of life is difficult and full of, of difficulties and terrors and evil. And so Jewish people would pray and sing this psalm to encourage themselves and those around them throughout their lives to look to the Lord In the midst of difficulty and evil. And so one of the cool things is is as you read this psalm, you're gonna see that it builds over time. There's like this this every two verses, the psalmist is gonna declare a new truth about who God is and what he looks to God for. And we're gonna notice four things. And I'm gonna go ahead and share them with you uh, if you're a note taker, so because I know that some of you guys can't keep up with me, as my wife tells me frequently. She's always like, slow down, slow down. So here are the four things we're going to see this morning as we work through this psalm. Right, the first thing we're going to see is that God is our helper. Then we're going to see that God is our keeper. Then we're going to see that God is our protector, And then lastly, we're going to see that God is present and faithful. And if you didn't get all those, don't worry. I'm going to repeat them again throughout the sermon, so you'll get them later on. But let me read these first two verses to you. The psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Right? So, the psalmist cries out there, God is my helper. God is our helper. And and as I said earlier, this was a, a song specifically in regards to Israelites traveling to Jerusalem. And outside of Jerusalem, there was hill country there and mountains all, all around surrounding the city of Jerusalem. It's one of the reasons why the city was strategic because it was able to be protected fairly easily because of the terrain and topography of the area. And what you need to know about that time, though, is what would happen in Um, you know, the first century and and before then is that raiders and robbers would often hide in the mountains or the caves of the hill country. And then if they wanted to rob somebody, they would see a caravan from the distance up on the mountain. They would come down the mountain. They would rob you and steal uh, your belongings. And they would head back into the mountains for safety and cover. And so it was dangerous traveling from city to city during those times without an army with you because you could literally lose your life depending on if there were raiders who spotted you and decided that they wanted to rob you. And so the psalmist is saying, hey, I'm traveling to Jerusalem. And as he stares up at the hill country, fear grips him and he goes, I could lose my life trying to make this pilgrimage to the temple to worship God. And as he looks to the mountains, he, he cries out, where does my help come from? Who who is going to help me if the raiders come down from the mountains in this moment? I'm scared and I don't know what to do. Who is going to help me? And I think we may not find ourselves in that exact situation. Although, you know, there have been times where I, as, as a, a younger man, was traveling through Southeast D.C. and maybe felt the same way that this person did. Or there might be certain parts of town that you might feel unsafe in. But very, very rarely, right, are we going to be faced with the fact that we're staring in, into the hill country and we're worried about raiders coming down from the mountains. But the fact that this became an illustration and a parable for all of life for the Israelites is fascinating to me because how often could we say we find ourselves in that same situation as the psalmist here? Where we look at something and we're staring down something in our lives and we're petrified because we don't know what to do. Maybe you're getting ready to graduate from college. And you're like, now what? Maybe you recently graduated from high school and you're getting ready to enter in, into college and you're like, now what? Maybe you're about to get married. Now what? Maybe you're staring down being a parent for the first time or the eighth time saying, now what? Maybe you're battling depression or some other, uh, other sort of mental health issues saying, now what? Maybe you or a family member is dealing with some, some health complication right now, whether it be COVID or cancer or something else. The lists are endless. And yet oftentimes, right, I would submit that when life gets the most crazy, right, instead of declaring to ourselves and preaching the truths about God's faithfulness to ourselves, we retreat and we look to ourselves to be our own savior and rescuer. Even if we were the author of our own demise or situation, right? So what's the, the funny part about that story with Josiah to me he was the one that could not button the buttons. And yet he doubled down believing in himself than looking for help outside of himself to help in that, in himself in that situation. And the question we have to ask ourselves is why? Why, why do we do that? Why, why, why does it seem pretty much universal amongst human beings that when faced with, with difficulty or strife or pain or suffering, do we double down and look inside for our own power instead of looking to help from places where it might actually come from? And I want to turn over to Genesis chapter 3 because I think if we learn this truth about uh, human beings and more specifically about ourselves, I think we'll save ourselves a lot of heartache. Over, over time, if we learn tr- th- this truth about human beings and how we tend to operate, right, we will see uh, pro- the propensity inside of ourselves to dig in and turn inward instead of looking outward for help the way that God designed things, right? Look at Genesis chapter 3 starting in verse 1, right? This is where everything goes haywire in scripture. It only takes three chapters, He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Right, so if you, you see here, Right? Everything up until this moment, the, the, the Jewish people had a word that described what life was like in Eden, the way that God had designed it. And it was this word called shalom. Right? And you may have heard that word before. It's often translated peace. But it's not just peace in the, in the sense of what we say, well, the, the alternative is war. Right. When, when that word shalom is used in the Hebrew, it's an all-encompassing peace. It's an it's a internal peace. It's a relational harmony amongst everyone that was around, and it was a harmony with creation, and it was a harmony with the Lord. And so the, it was much more extensive than just, hey, these two countries are not at war with one another. And what gets fractured in the midst of this is when the serpent enters the garden, Right, notice what he does. He said, does God actually say that you can't eat of any fruit in the garden. Right? He starts placing doubt in Eve's mind, right? And, and notice what he does there, right? He doesn't right, p- play necessarily to her vanity or to her intelligence, All he does to an extent, but what he really does is he places doubt about this. Can I really trust God? Does God really have my best interest in mind? Or is God withholding something from me and Adam in this particular situation? And he goes on to tell her, you will not surely die, right? God lied to you, you can't trust him. And so she eats of the fruit and Adam eats of the fruit and their eyes are open and instead of calling for help once they've disobeyed and screwed up, what do they do? They double down, right? They sew fig leaves together and they hide right, because this is what has been true of the human race since the fall, right, is that instead of turning to God for help as they were designed to by God, right, when Adam and Eve sinned, right, they started to believe the lie that they could trust themselves and survive on their own apart from him. And we do the same thing now. We double down and try to do things on our own. We believe we are self-sufficient. But we see in Genesis chapter one and two, and even into chapter three, that is not how God designed us. And the beautiful thing that we see here in Psalm 121 is that the psalmist is encouraging us to realize God is the better way. God is our helper. That word help in the Hebrew is this word ezer. And, and what it means in, in Hebrew is one who literally provides aid whenever needed. And it's used 21 times throughout the Old Testament. Uh, It's used to describe Eve when God creates Eve for Adam. It's used to describe God as he delivered Israel from Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 18. It's used to describe God's deliverance from from his enemies as they entered into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 33. And so our encouragement here in these first two verses is this recognition that life is hard, Don't make it harder by not finding out who God is and seeking him in the midst of trial and difficulty. The psalmist declares as he stares down the danger and evil heading towards Jerusalem, God is my helper and I can trust him. And there's all sorts of ways that this manifests itself, that God's help manifests itself, right? Sometimes God will, in some supernatural way, show up in your life, right? Some of you guys here this morning have stories of where God supernaturally showed up and, and there was no other explanation other than God just did something and I don't know how to describe it, right? A lot of, lots of you guys here this morning have told me stories about God showing up in some way, shape, or form. Sometimes God shows up to be our help through his word, right? I cannot count the number of times in in the throes and the pits of despair where I was ready to throw in the towel where I was broken over my own sin, my own rebellion, my own disgusting behavior, that God's word has met me in that moment and helped me and encouraged me to go on and to trust him because of his grace over me that Christ's work was sufficient for me. Other, other ways that God meets us is through the Holy Spirit, right? that the Holy Spirit will empower you to move in some way, shape, or form. Jesus himself says that it's better for him to go on and be with the Father because the helper would not come if he did not go, go forth into heaven. And sometimes God is our helper through his people. How many of you guys have been down or needed help or didn't know how you were gonna make it through a situation and then your church family came alongside you, met you in that moment, helped your family, helped you? Right? God doesn't just operate all the time supernaturally like we see in scripture. Sometimes he chooses to use his people. And one of the encouragements that I would give you is sometimes God wants to use you in someone else's life. To, to be there. One of the most encouraging things this, this past week is someone was very vulnerable in our church's group me chat this week and just shared with us, for those of you guys that aren't in that, if you want to be a part of that seat, come over here afterwards and we can get you in there. But she just shared that she'd been battling depression for several months now. And the outpouring of love and support towards this young lady in our church that came from people saying that they were praying for her, that they were thinking about her, that reached out to her. People I know called her to check in on her afterwards. That was God meeting her in that place and being a help to her, but using the people of God to do so. To where she even expressed the next day how thankful she was for her church family. This is how God meets us because God is our helper. But we have to reach this place where like the psalmist, as we stare down the reality of what's before us, we say, I need help. And it's okay to need help. God designed me to be dependent upon him, not dependent upon myself. And so as the psalmist cries out and he recognizes God is his helper, look at what he says next in verses three through four. He says, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor nor sleep. He says, God is my keeper, right? God is our keeper is the second thing we see here. And I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but I want you to notice a few things, right? Look at verse three again. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber, That word keep is used here and it's also used again in verse five. And it means someone who observes or watches over you and makes sure that everything is okay. Then he goes on to say that God does not sleep or rest in his watch over you. He's always aware and watching over Israel and subsequently the psalmist Subsequently, you. That God does not rest in watching over you. I think these verses denote an interesting concept about God, guarding the steps that we take and the decisions we make. Right? Last week, Vinay did a great job of breaking down how oftentimes God's will can actually be the desire of our hearts when it's aligned with God's word. That oftentimes, like if if you feel like, hey, you know, I feel like I wanna go to college and study to be a doctor, but I'm not sure if that's God's will, but I have this just really, really strong desire to do that. Well, pursue it, right? God is likely placing that desire in you because he wants you to be a doctor for his glory. Some of you guys are like, I just wanna be a mom or a dad. God probably wants you to be a mom or a dad who's gonna love those children and raise them to the glory of God. Right, that God's will, we often overcomplicate it, thinking that we need a vision like David gets or like Peter gets in the New Testament, that we think God always operates that way, but he doesn't always operate that way. And what we see is that, that when our desires and our hearts are aligned with God's will, right, God is making a promise here that he will keep us and protect us in the midst of that walk. It is a promise that God guards our actions and steps, so that we will not fall into folly and despair and be destroyed. Right, a couple of months ago, I, I'm studying the book of James with a group of men in the church, and as I was reading through the first couple of verses of uh, James's letter, right, James says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And as our our group was discussing this concept of asking God for wisdom and seeing there that James just isn't saying, hey, ask God, but he actually promises that God gives wisdom, a really interesting discussion kind of was was born in our group. And one of the guys in the group just said, well, "What about if I don't feel like God is giving me wisdom in a particular situation?" I said, "Well, what, how do we approach right scripture when scripture says something and declares something to be true and yet we don't feel like it is?" Right? How do we, how do we how do we approach and reconcile those two things? And as we were discussing this interesting thought came out amongst us, and it was this really, really cool moment to see God meet us there as we were talking through this, is this idea, well, just because I believe that God is not imparting some supernatural wisdom or knowledge to me in any given situation, doesn't mean that his promise is null and void. That God may be imparting wisdom to me, and I just may not recognize it. That part of God imparting wisdom to me may be him keeping me from folly and despair in the same way that the psalmist promises he does here, even when I don't feel it. That even if I don't feel wise, James says that God is still generous and promises us wisdom. And in the same way, the psalmist is telling us that in the midst of our journey through life, God is faithful. Even when the terrain is difficult, we can do what the Israelites would do as they faced hardship and difficulty, and we can preach the truth about who God is to ourselves. That God is faithful and guards our steps and keeps us. Psalmist so goes on to say in verse, verses five and six, he says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. And so he moves from telling um, the, the audience, Hey, God protects me in all that I do and protects m- me from myself oftentimes, right, to saying, God is also my protector from external pressures and people, and evil, right? So we see this promise here that, that God is a keeper, right, internally, but he's also a protector externally, right? He says that, that God is a shade on our right hand, that the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Right? Now just pause and think about that for a minute, right? Because most of us like, aren't afraid of the moon, right? But what, what is the psalmist trying to communicate to us here? He's saying, I don't know about you guys, but there is never a time of day, right, where either the sun is not present or the moon is not present. What the psalmist is saying to us is that God is protecting us from evil all the time. That there is not a moment, night or day, where God rests in protecting his children. In the same way that we can fear that we might make a wrong step or make a poor decision, the reality is is that there are are outside evils and pressures that can come after us as well. And we're all aware of that. Someone trying to convince you to to do something you know you shouldn't do. right? The pressures of, of life financially. Right? can put us in places and place pressure on us. And the psalmist declares that God is our protector in those times and that he is ultimately keeping us from danger day and night. And not only is he doing that, but that he is an ever-present shade that we should seek to run underneath. The psalmist is preaching to himself, hey, trust God over yourself. Trust in God's ability to protect over yourself. And then as he gets to these last two verses, right, he's gonna share two more promises that God is ever present and he is always faithful. And obviously we've seen those woven throughout the entire Psalm up into this point, but he's gonna make it clear. He says, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I would encourage you that if you ever find yourself in a season where you're struggling to see God's protection and presence in your life. To open up this psalm and just continuously repeat it to yourself. right? To, to help you right? be reminded of who God is and what he wants to do in your life. He will keep you from evil. He will keep your life He will keep your going out and your coming in. The author is saying that in all that we set to do, if we are living to honor God and love others, that there is no area in our life not under God's protection. This means God cares about your relationship with your family and it is underneath his protection. God cares about your work and your job, and it is under his protection. God cares about your friendships and your relationships, and it is under his protection. That there is no area of your life that God is not Lord of and that you can trust him from this time forth and forevermore because God is faithful and ever present. And so when we, like the psalmist, right, maybe you're, maybe you're in a season right now right, where you're like him and you're thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty concerned about what's coming. Down the road. <laughs> okay, I'm pretty concerned about what I see in front of me. I'm concerned about how I'm gonna pay my bills next month. I'm concerned as to how I'm going to do schooling with my kids in the midst of a global pandemic. I'm concerned about my new job. I'm concerned about relational strife in my family. I'm concerned about health issues in my own life or in someone else's. Pause and remember who God is. God is our helper. He is our keeper. He is our protector. And he is ever-present and faithful. And I know that some of us, some of you might be sitting there this morning and maybe you've been suffering literally for years. And Saying, yeah, Kevin, it's really easy to Read some verses out of Psalm 121 and say that that God is all those things, but God doesn't feel that way to me. He doesn't feel like my helper right now. He doesn't feel like my protector right now. He doesn't feel like my keeper right now. He doesn't feel present and faithful. What if in the throes of my struggle, I haven't seen God show up or haven't felt his presence? And in the throes of danger or difficulty or problems, I'm struggling to turn to God. Here's what I would say to you you're not alone. I have yet to meet a professing follower of Jesus who perfectly lives out what the psalmist is declaring here every single day and minute of their lives. I haven't met one. I've seen some who are close and I aspire to be like them. But there are days or difficulties or frustrations or times in my life where I throw in the towel and trust in my own ability and power and stop looking to the Lord. And this is why I love God's words so much. Because the psalmist is writing this song for a reason. Most musicians I, I've ever uh, talked to who write their own music Rarely are they writing a song for someone else. Sometimes they are, but most of the time, most great musicians and artists are writing songs out of their own pain or heartbreak or sorrow or something they've experienced as they've walked through their own life. And this is often true of how God uses the men that he used to pin his very word that we have now, that he was so invested in the life of the psalmist here that this psalmist in a place of deep hurt and fear and pain is writing these lyrics to remind himself that he could trust the Lord. He's preaching to himself. He's, remind, he's writing to remind himself of the truth about who his God is, even as danger is staring him in the face. If you've spent any time in the Psalms, you know that most of them were written by a guy named David, who's called a man after God's own heart, which gives me great comfort because David screwed up a lot. I'm always, the two people like outside of Jesus that I, that I most identify with in scripture are David and Peter because they both screw up a ton, but ultimately they have a deep abiding trust and the lord and david frequently cries out to himself in song god can do it god is able god will keep me god is present god is faithful even if i can't see it and sometimes even in the midst of those songs he's crying about how, about how much his life sucks in that moment and then he preaches to himself. But I will place my hope and my confidence and my trust in the Lord who is able to deliver me. And this psalm is an opportunity to respond in the same way. Go back to my story earlier about when I was telling you about Josiah. Do you think that is the first time that he had ever experienced his dad's help? Do you think that is the first time I'd ever had to help Josiah with anything? No, far from it. (laughs) (laughs) and yet I had to remind him, Josiah, calm down, bro. Dad is here for you. Dad loves you. God has put me in your life to protect you, to help you, to guard you, so that you can succeed and mature and grow. Jesus says in the Gospels that if a good, if a, if a father who is evil, like me, gives good things to my children, how much more so does God want to give and be there for you? This psalm is a cry out for the psalmist and for us not to forget that God Is faithful. We can all struggle to turn to God and trust in His help, but God's word is clear: the only true help is from Him. Which leads us to the next inevitable question, right? Well, I've asked God for help. Why does it feel like He isn't helping? Like I don't see my situation changing. I don't see things moving. And I don't want to diminish suffering or difficulty here this morning that anyone might be facing. Because there are times when you will cry out to God and it will appear that he has forsaken you. And I would even go so far as to say that the evil one will use that to his advantage and try to place even more doubt in your mind in the midst of those seasons. But has he really forsaken you? God's word says no. Look at verse seven and eight again. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and when? Forevermore. That word life there is translated in the King James Version, soul. Because it is this all-encompassing idea of not just your physical life, but the very essence of who God created you to be. God is protecting and keeping Right? Most of us manufacture and set up our lives in su- such a way as to protect our, our financial health or to protect our physical health or to protect our family relationships in some way, shape, or form. And what the psalmist is saying here is God is so much more encompassing than that. Right? You, you may have the power to just protect one little small area of who you are. God is all-encompassing. That he protects all of it That this has the sense of both being temporal in nature, but in a much more real sense, eternal. And what God is declaring he will do. That he will keep you from evil, from pride, from yourself, from the devil and his schemes. That God cares more about your soul than he cares even about your prosperity and comfort. And he promises that he will keep you from this time forth and forevermore here's what I take away from that. There's a a passage in the New Testament where Jesus is talking with his disciples and they're they're talking about fear. And and they're talking about uh, ungodly rulers and and how to worry about them. And and there's this, this statement made by Jesus that he says, why would you worry about someone who's able to take your life when the one whom you should fear has the ability to take away your very soul, an essence of who God created you to be. That is who you should fear. And I would submit that oftentimes when we are in a place of fear or suffering or trial, we become short-sighted and understandably so, right? All we can see is what's in front of us. How am I gonna pay my next bill? Is my boss going to fire me? Will my kids ever listen? And we see what's in front of us and we see the pressure mounting and we fail to realize that God is eternal and his plans and purposes are so much bigger than that minute, that day, that week, that month, that year, that decade, or that century. That God is for your good and that good extends beyond the next five minutes. But that your ultimate good is that you would know him, trust him, and learn that he is faithful and be dependent upon him, both now and for eternity. And that is how the psalmist can say, staring at the mountain, not knowing if he's about to be killed and murdered for the for the money that he has on his waist. and he can preach to himself. The Lord will keep me from all evil. He will keep my life. He will keep me in my going out and my coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And even if my very breath were to be taken from me at this very moment, I know that my God is for me and he will keep me either now or in the life that is to come. So I think the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is will we trust that God? Will we turn to him? Both when things are good, but also in our hour of need as our help, our keeper, our protector. This week, if you're in a gospel community, you're going to be discussing this and what this looks like on a practical level right what what i've shared with you this morning is like the 100 level class <laughs> right a foundational truth of this is who god is but sometimes we need to talk through the reality of how this impacts our lives how is god my protector when i have cancer how is god faithful when i don't have any money how is God kind got of faithful when I don't know what the next year of my life is gonna look like, much less the next five. What does it look like when God is my helper? And I think God is gonna meet us when we ask those questions because his word promises that he does. If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, right, maybe you're hearing this and you're like, man, like, I struggle with this. I know that as I was wrestling through this passage this week, one of the things that, that hit me like a freight train was, man, I, I, don't, I don't feel this way a whole lot. Like, it's, it's not reflexive for me to be staring at an annoyance or a hindrance or pain or suffering or trial and say, God's got this. Like that, that is not my reflexive response. I tend to be a lot more like my son. No, get away, I can do it. And then finally, in like the pits of despair, I can tell you this, God has always met me. Because he is a good and ever present father. Faithful to the end. If you're here this morning and you're like, that's me, that's me, here's my encouragement to you. Do the same thing that God asks us to do every single day of our lives as followers of Jesus. Repent. Confess to God, God, I am not trusting you. Forgive me. And scripture promises us he is faithful to forgive every day single time. If you're here this morning and you're like, I, first of all, thank you for being here, And but you're not a Christian. Some crazy friend of yours convinced you to be here at 8.15 on a Sunday morning outside in hot Florida. When I say this, God's doing something in your life, most people don't make that decision to just show up at a church meeting outside during a global pandemic at 8.15 in the morning, when it's 90 with a humidity of like 110. I'd just say that that might be an indicator that God's trying to tell you something. (laughs) But more so than that, let me just say this. God loves you so much that scripture tells us he sent his only son to be this keeper and protector for you. Scripture says that that when Jesus went to the cross, he was taking on every sin that you had ever committed in rebellion towards God, that you and every human being are in the same position that you were rebellious towards your creator, and that there was no way to repay that rebellion except God sent his son to repay it. And there's something that occurs when when Jesus goes through his crucifixion and and his death and his burial and his resurrection. There's something that occurs there that, that theologians call the great exchange. And what's happening there is that Jesus is taking on all of my sin, all of my shame, all of my rebellion, all of my unbelief, all my lack of faith. And he takes that on himself and he pays the penalty of God's wrath for that rebellion and subsequently, at the same time, he gives to us his righteous standing before the Father. That Jesus committed no wrong, that he committed no rebellion, he committed no treason, and yet suffered and died in our place and gives to us his standing with God the Father. And the protection that the psalmist talks about for God's children is then given to us because of Jesus Christ. But it only comes through him. And so I would encourage you that if you are here this morning and you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ with your very life and soul, that you would do so. By asking God to forgive you of your rebellion and that you wanna trust in Jesus Christ to forgive you of sin and adopt you into God's family. And if you are in his family, this promise is for us a promise of help, a promise of hope, a promise of protection, a promise of presence. That's what God offers us. In a moment, we're gonna take communion. We do that every Sunday here at Aletheia. And if you're a Christian, here's just what I would encourage you to do this morning for you. Partake in communion, we do that during the the first song that's played after I'm finished up here. We take communion not as an act of penance or payment back to God for what he's done, but as an act of worship. That when we take the bread and the juice, that those things represent Jesus' flesh and blood poured out for us so that we might be forgiven. And we don't take it because we, we need to pay God back in some way or that we have to observe uh, some act or, or do some specific thing to earn God's favor. No, we do it as an act of worship saying, Jesus, you've already done this for me. Thank you. Forgive me. And help me to trust in you more so that I might see the type of faithfulness and trust that the psalmist has for you here. so that next time I might respond reflexively in joy towards you instead of rebellion and experience the joy that comes from knowing you instead of trusting in myself. Let's pray and ask, us, ask God that he might meet us in that place.